0: Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, we've got a change of pace today. Today's guest is Gail Gand. Gail Gand, a two-time James Beard award-winning pastry chef, uh, longtime host on the Food Network, and a very interesting person. I uh, got a chance to hang out with Gail in Cooperstown and chat with her at length about making it as a, high level pastry chef, which is not easy to do in the male dominated world of kitchens and all that good stuff. Really, really interesting stuff. Everything from the politics of, uh, being in a high level kitchen to the restaurant business, which is hard and fraught and weird and challenging and, uh, pastries. And then she baked pastries over the weekend. So I ate a bunch of them, which was good. Uh, thanks to the Katz family for hosting us and to Gail and Jimmy for being really cool and everybody else and, um uh, this was neat. It was uh, Gail is a uh, newer pal, and so it was very neat to kind of get to know her a little bit better, and uh, hopefully share that conversation with you. Uh, I think this is the second time I've had a chef type of person on. Had one back when I did one. Was it like 2016 or so? And uh, that was an interesting chat too. And uh, everybody eats food. And uh, I have a sweet tooth, so I'm always up for chats about desserts. And I hope that you enjoy this one very much, too. And uh, that was a great weekend in Cooperstown, uh, the second of the two Cooperstown podcasts, the first one being with John Thorne. If you haven't listened to that one, what the hell are you waiting for? Go listen to it. That was uh, last week, and that was really, really good. Thorne is a legend, and he's phenomenal. Uh, so do all that. Hey, lots of sponsors this week, which is good. We've got to pay the bills. Let's start with ZipRecruiter. Listen, ZipRecruiter, fantastic. Hiring is a pain in the ass, but ZipRecruiter makes it easy. You go to ziprecruiter.com slash Jonah and you will be able to connect and make it work. Find the candidates that you need to fill the jobs that are available. It is fantastic. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. Powerful matching technology allows ZipRecruiter to scan thousands of resumes, find people with the right experience, and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlights the top candidates, so you never miss a great match. So effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. And right now, listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to the following URL. That is ziprecruiter.com slash Jonah. That's ziprecruiter.com slash Jonah. And you know what? We'll do one more time. Z-I-P-R-E-C-R-U-I-T-E-R dot com slash Jonah. Cause there's nothing more entertaining than spelling on a podcast. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Thank you to ZipRecruiter for sponsoring the podcast. Hey, we got some programming notes. So uh, CBS Sports, if you are not watching CBS HQ, what the hell is wrong with you? There is no sport that is beyond the reach of CBS HQ. Are you fired up for the stretch run of baseball? You know what? You can see my smiling face talking about baseball in all its forms 75 million times a day, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, late at night, constantly bombarding you with information about baseball. Get on that. But if you're at the college football, we got that going. We got a really great college football crew over at CBS. Uh, NFL is coming up. If you're into that, that's good. You want NBA hot stove, that's cool. Anything that you could possibly imagine. Go to cbssports.com slash HQ and you can watch live that way or do it through the CBS Sports app, which is really cool. If you've got an Apple TV or a Roku or anything like that, just punch up the CBS Sports app and you could turn it on 24 hours a day. News and analysis. Really, really cool. I love my job. It's really great. And I hope you do too. Well, love me on my job. I don't know. Something like that. Anyway, do all of that. Here comes another sponsor, friends. That is Quip. Quip is fantastic. The truth is that most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, not for long enough, and forget to brush our teeth on time. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. What makes Quip so different? First of all, I am using Quip now, and it is freaking great. A terrific electric toothbrush, fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, and it works really well. We all stink at brushing. I'm going to do it in 10 seconds and run out the door or Whatever. You know what? Good teeth are important. You don't want cavities. You don't want root canals. It stinks. So use Quip. Packs just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. It's got a built-in timer, again, which I use so that I clean for the death. Test. It's recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. And the subscription plans are for your health, not just your convenience. New brush heads on dentist-recommended schedule. So every three months for just five bucks, you get new heads. And you can include that with free shipping worldwide. So how about that? Backed by a network of more than 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers who use Quip every day. Quip starts at just 25 bucks. So you go to getquip.com slash Jonah, and you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Jonah. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Jonah. Thank you to Quip for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, you will be listening to this on Wednesday on Thursday, you will see my new work at sportsnet.ca. Uh, I've got a piece coming out about managers. Uh, there's some speculation as to what might happen with John Gibbons, uh, despite the preeminent hashtag, Gibby the best. Uh, maybe Gibby not the best in the eyes of management? I don't know. It's hard to say. I think they kind of dealt him a bad hand, but, uh, that's neither here nor there. Well, maybe it is here nor there because managers get scapegoated for things and, and really talent tends to win out more than anything. But yeah. I will weigh in on managers. You'll see that on sportsnet.ca on Thursday. And also catch me on Blue Jays Central, which should be about 6.40 p.m. Eastern Time Thursday evening on uh, Sportsnet as well. So, yeah, lots of Blue Jays content there. And we have one more sponsor, and that is Lightstream. If you're thinking about saving money this summer, why not start by paying less interest on your credit card balances? You can refinance with a credit card consolidation loan. From Lightstream, listen, it's an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89% APR with auto pay. And <laughs> compare that to credit cards, might be 18%, might be 20% or whatever. Credit cards will murder you. They are evil and terrible. And Lightstream is neither of those things. They're great. You can get your funds as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees. So say goodbye to high interest card, credit card, <laughs> high interest credit cards. This summer, start saving with Lightstream. Listeners of the Jonah Carey Podcast and save even more with an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. Only way to do this is go to lightstream.com slash Jonah. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R. EAM.com slash Jonah. Get on this, friends. You've got debt. It sucks. Lightstream's going to help you out. Uh, the disclaimer, subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit Lightstream.com for more information and thank you to Lightstream for f- sponsoring the podcast. This is a very, very long intro, so go enjoy this amazing podcast. I hope it was worth your while to wait on it. It's Gail Gand. She's really cool. You will want to eat lots of whatever, cakes, macaron, whatever it is you like. So enjoy. (laughs) conversation <laughs> is that there's no like interview style we're jumping into it and you're talking about the ukulele and um tenor ukulele tenor ukulele
1: specifically which is a bigger size uke so it's got a bolder sound and... so when you
0: pick up an instrument when you're a small child How do you know, I definitely want to play the tenor ukulele as opposed to the tuba or whatever? You were little when you started, right? I was
1: little. I was six years old when I started playing guitar, but it was because my dad taught guitar. Okay. So um, that was the instrument that was around the house Mm. to play, and I could sit in on his lessons. My job was to sharpen the pencils before every lesson and put them on the music stands. So, you know, at some point I'm like, I need... Some some payback for doing this, and so he traded me lessons for manual labor as a six this year old fair. child.
0: So percussion was out of the question. What if you wanted to be the drummer?
1: Uh, you know, we didn't have a drum set in the house uh. at that point. I actually, I have one in my house now. Okay, because two of my three kids play drums. Is that right? Yeah, so I don't actually have a living room like I, Karen's. Always, my friends are always like. Mad at me because I don't have a couch and I don't have furniture because my living room <laughs> is all like a piano. There's a cello, there's a drum set, a dump kit, which you know takes up a lot of space, and then myriad guitars and um, regular size ukes. I have a Martin regular size uke that's really cool from from my husband that was a birthday present. Wow! So there's just instruments everywhere instead of actual furniture that you can sit on.
0: <laughs> Do you think people are born musical?
1: I know my dad thought that everybody had a musical ability. Okay. Um, there's definitely been people I've met who have disproved that theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, but I do think that there's sort of like a genetic predisposition to it, or like I kind of feel music in me, okay. which is a little embarrassing because like I break into song and want to always sing along with stuff. Nice. And it's not. Um, you know what I notice a lot of other people are doing right so I know that I have some sort of need to have music around me in a more intense way than most people do but how do
0: you know if that's nature or nurture if you were in such a musical environment
1: yeah I don't know how you know I mean my brother's a professional musician right well um I guess
0: would he have been a professional musician if your dad was an accountant uh
1: Hard to Yeah, hard to know. I don't know how you would know that. And all kids, you know, you find out like film directors like Sofia Coppola, you know, she grew up (laughs) with her dad. So I do think, you know, there's like a half a cup of what your parents did for a living and a half a cup of what you're good at. And that equals what you do.
0: It's one thing to take lessons and try to master your instruments. Another thing to, okay, this is now your well, kind of living, but you're a child and going out on the road and doing these things. Is is there a meta-awareness at that point or is it just, well, this is the only life that I have. I'm eight or nine or whatever, but I'm just doing it? Or are you taking a step back and saying, well, my friends are playing in the park and I'm, we talked about this, Expo 67 or whatever, doing something that just is not a typical thing for a child to do.
1: Well, I, like I knew my family didn't take ski vacations yes. like my friends did right. and I like, never wore a white ski jacket. I remember being really cognizant of that. Like, I didn't own one of those puffy white ski jackets <laughs> that had the tags hanging yeah. on. Um. So I knew that our vacations were really different because any time we took a vacation, we would always be performing somewhere with mm. the Gann family singers, and that way my dad could write the trip off is what he told us. That was, like, the excuse. But my dad was just always looking... Uh, for anywhere to perform and any reason whether he got paid or didn't get paid yeah. he just he needed music around him and wanted to be playing music all the time so we you know we sort of were in the the glow of that i guess was the thing that amazes me like yeah. i've i've had 6 year olds yeah right and or like when i was playing at expo 67 i'm in 5th grade And I think of my kids when they were in fifth grade and parading them across the country and getting them to go up on stage and getting them to, like, do their introduction and come in, you know, on the fifth bar and sing this harmony. Like, my kids wouldn't be able to do that at all. And I'm amazed that my father was able to get us to do it and that we could do it. Yeah. Because I, you know, I I taught guitar in high school to all, you know, different ages of people. And I... I'm not like I'm not trying to say like oh I was an exceptional fifth grader but I can't believe my dad got us to do what we did so well. Yeah. I don't know how he was able to or if we were just, you know, so
0: predisposed uh, suited to suited for yeah. it.
1: Yeah. But it, looking back, that was the part that really amazes me of like like I can barely get my kids to get in the car, you <laughs> know, and comb their hair. It's like how did he get us to play simple gifts on the dulcimer, and then take a the solo, wow. and, you know, and like Expo 67, yeah. when I I did some of the introductions to the songs, and I had to learn my intros in French as well, oh. and it was probably like bad phonetic French that my dad, you know, there wasn't Google Translate, yeah, yeah. so he probably looked up word by word, which doesn't necessarily mean that's how you say it in a sentence, um, but then I had to memorize that also, like, the idea of getting my seventh graders now to do that, I don't think it could happen. It wouldn't happen. So I, I wish I could ask him, like, how would you crack that code? Because that was pretty fascinating.
0: That's an interesting parenting dilemma, too, because on the one hand, like languages, for instance. We have a friend whose kid speaks so many languages, and apparently up until age five you can retain a lot. He seems particularly predisposed, and he, he's working on Cyrillic And he's this little child and children theoretically have a lot of mental capacity. There's a lot of society puts blocks on what you can do, but when you're younger, you are actually capable of a lot. So on the one hand it's, well, why don't we find out if my kid is a virtuoso or this or that? On the other hand, it's, I could also just have my kid go outside and scrape their knees and do whatever. And both of these things have merits. It's cool to push a child and to see what is the full limit of their potential. But on the other hand, it's like, well, maybe to use a cliche, you let the kids be kids. So I'm wondering from your perspective as the child at that time, like I imagine you had fun doing this stuff. But was it like I'm missing out like the ski vacations you missed out? But was it? You know, was there a worry? Like, you obviously didn't choose to parent your children that way. You said, you want to do this? You want to dye your hair this way? You want to go do... Fine, I don't care. I'm going to be this way. Whereas, you know, your family had a particular idea of what it was that you were going to be doing, at least at that age.
1: Yeah, there was a... You know, it seemed like there was a design, you know, it was family singers by design. Yeah. um, So that my dad could perform and play music, but also include his family in it. The funny thing, I mean, the way the whole thing started was my mom asked for a guitar for her birthday. Mm-hmm. My dad had been a, a classic jazz trumpet player in college. He okay. had like a big band. They played parties and dances, and that mm-hmm. was part of how he made money in college. And so he was a musician at you know—at heart, yeah. played you know that's what he did in the army he played the trumpet and you know he was the guy that blew Reveille in the morning
2: mm-hmm. so
1: he's a musician but you know goes to college gets a white collar job yeah. has kids marries my mom and when um i don't know what birthday it would have been but when i was 5 or 6 my mom for her birthday asked for a guitar mm. And this is, you know, like 1962 and my dad is just like,
2: like he can (laughs)
1: barely hold his excitement. He's like, Oh my God, you know, Myrna wants a guitar. This is so great. And Uh he goes out and buys her this Stella guitar. I remember, and it was like fake sunburst, you know, and gives it to her for her birthday. And she's like, Oh my God, thank you so much. This is exactly what I wanted. This is exactly what I asked for. And then she turns around and she hangs it on the wall above the couch as a piece of art.
0: Oh.
1: And she liked how guitars looked. It wasn't Uh, to play it. Yeah. And her dad is like, oh, Like, (laughs) like, yeah, I was so close to my wife, you know, taking up an instrument. And he stared at it for a couple weeks on the wall, and then he took it down, and he decided he was going to learn how to play it. Mm. So he starts taking guitar lessons at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago, and the neighbors kind of got wind that he... Was learning how to play, you know, "This Land Is Your Land," and said, "Can you teach us?" Mm-hmm. And my dad's like, "Well, sure, sure. You know, we can have a group lesson." And yeah. there were like six neighbors, and they all wanted to learn how to play guitar from my dad. And my dad was basically like eight lessons ahead of his students.
0: Right. Yeah. Always. Yeah.
1: So all he had to do was be like, you know, no, eight weeks more. I than know these three chords, sure. and then I can teach you. Yeah. And that was sort of how the whole thing started, and so I actually have sort of an attitude of like the lemon angel pie that I made last so night.
2: Good.
1: <laughs> I I was about to teach that in a class a few weeks ago, and then realized, oh, I've never made it before. I probably should make it once <laughs> before I teach others.
0: That's cool, though.
1: You know, it's like put on your seatbelt first, then assist others. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I have this idea that, you know, sort of you can learn things quickly and assimilate the knowledge and then be able to pass it on in a valuable way, definitely. And, you know, in the restaurant business in general, you know, you're always sort of on call. I rem- my chef came to me. So this is early in my career. It's like in the 80s. I'm mm-hmm. working in Rochester, New York at a hotel. It's called the Strathallen Hotel. And my chef is Greg Broman. And Greg comes to me. I'm his pastry chef at the time, and says, Gail, can you make croissants? And I say, oh, of course, chef. And he's like, okay, great. I I think I might need you to do some tomorrow. I had never done any at the hotel there. I had never done any in my life. But you don't say no. But you don't say no. I said, yes. I go home that night. I make nine different recipes of croissants. I stay up all night, Mm -hmm. and I teach myself how to make them. And the next morning when I get there, and Chef Greg Roman says, Oh, those croissants I said I was going to need, I'm going to need them. You know, can you pull that off for me? I'm like, absolutely, chef, no problem. And and now I know it. But when I said yes, I didn't know it. Hmm. Um, but I, what I did know is that I come through for myself. And I can count on myself to, to learn things if I need to. That's
0: a very no-fear kind of attitude, though, because I think that we all have psychological blocks. And... Uh... I mean, I'll tell a slightly personal story. I, I remember Amy and I, you know, went up north one weekend and I was like, I can't build a fire. And she said, sure you can. And I built an amazing fire. It was this roaring fire. It was nothing thing. Everybody could build a fire. But I was like, oh, of course I can. But you had this. I have
1: the opposite attitude. You have such funny, a can-do attitude. My husband knows this. Yeah. And, and kind of uses it for evil, not for good. <laughs> like he'll go, he would say. Who's the
0: softest, sweetest, nicest why? man ever. Yeah. And
1: he'd say, I bet. You can't build a fire, right? And he'll say that I can't. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, watch me. Yeah, and I've got this real, like, oh, yeah, you can't make me stop. You know, watch me do this. Yeah. So if you dare me, like, tell me I can't do something, I naturally want to do it. Um, you know, it's probably something I got from my dad. He was a very determined guy. Yeah. Who, you know, he came from kind of a lower middle class family, uh-huh. fairly uneducated from sort of central southern Illinois. And he was determined to, you know, not let... His dad was a coal salesman. Mm. His mom, you know, smoked Lucky Strike non-filters and drank Coca-Cola and, you know, made excellent fried chicken, I must say. But, you know, not a really sophisticated family. Yeah. And he decided, you know, he wanted to do better in life. So he's at college. He finds this nice Jewish girl, my mom, marries, you know, marries up, marries her, and... uh just, you know, does, does better than the generation before, which is kind of what in America we do or we're supposed to do. We're sort of stuck right now, but,
0: um, (laughs) can you teach that kind of drive, can do attitude? You have three children. Is that doable or or is there, again, nature versus nurture? No,
1: I think you can. And you know, I have twins, so I do the nature nurture experiment every day (laughs) and it's, my, most of my conclusion is it's nature. Okay. You know, I have two girls. One's like super outgoing mm-hmm. and ready for her close up and just, you know, a character and tons of confidence. And the other one, she did a report in school a couple weeks ago about low self-esteem and how hard it is to have that. She's kind of shy, she's reserved. That's
0: very interesting to have right. the confidence to talk about it, right. though. That's, that's so, yes,
1: I should have pointed that out. How yeah, is That's pretty great, actually,
0: in some ways. But it's. Bad, like, but great. Because
1: you know, she's shy, and, yeah. you know, Ruby's got like an agent and, you know, goes to auditions. Ella could never do that. Yeah. And I convinced myself, you know, if, if something made Ruby you know, we used to call it bossy, but now we call it leadership qualities, right? <laughs> you know, if we something we did made Ruby have leadership qualities, they both would have it, you know? Or if something we did made Ella shy, they both would be that way. So they, and they were kind of that way in utero, to be perfectly honest, which Jimmy, you know, he's always like, you can know. I'm like, you wait till they come out. Wow. This one, this one's trouble, and this one's like a Buddha angel. <laughs> like you can almost see the halo over her head. So um so a lot of it is nature having said that
2: Yeah
1: I've had a bunch of interns um you know my girls are not fully formed so I, yeah. I don't yes. know yet yeah. um my son's 22 so he's like mostly there mm-hmm. but like one of my interns Jess came to me when she was about 14 and in the working in the kitchen with me and mm-hmm. doing performances and being on stage that's and young. traveling and wow. she kind of knew early that that's what she wanted to do and she was sort of like skipping school a little and mm-hmm. Um, and because she heard me talk so much and give so many, you know, I, I do keynote speaking and I do stand up and mm-hmm. I also do cooking demonstrations, like the whole thing. She heard me say those ideas a couple times of like, you know what, if your chef asks you to do something and you don't know how to do it, just say you do anyway, and then go home and learn it. And then she'll call me. She's on a cruise ships right now for Holland America for America's Test Kitchen, Mm -hmm. she'll like send me an instant message or, you know, call me and say like, you know, that thing you say about like, you don't know how to do something. And then like that night you go, she goes, I did it and it worked. So that's such
0: a cool, empowering feeling. It's, it's the best.
1: Well, you feel heard and you feel like, okay, so it really works. And you can, you know, help someone have more fun in their lives. For sure. Yeah. So, so some of it can be taught, but like. Stay tuned and check back in and you know, maybe seven or eight years to see if the girls got any of that.
0: But, I uh, see, I'm wondering about going into your profession then because if you, I assume if you talk to most, well, a lot of chefs, they might say, well, you know, I grew up cooking and like, messing around in the kitchen with my mom and then I figured I'd give it a shot or whatever. But I'm wondering, you know, whatever, if those are the origins or not, but if it was like by 13, 14, you you're know, like, oh, I'm definitely going to be a James Beard Award winning Desert like if it was that extent because not you felt, so despite the fact you had this great inner confidence, you did not envision that the trajectory of your career would, would no, be I, that upward.
1: I was supposed to be a professional musician. I right. had a bone spur on my finger as a kid and my parents had surgery to have it removed because my dad said, you know, someday you're going to be on television as a musician and you're going to be playing classical guitar and there's going to be a close-up of your hand and they're going to see that bone spur. So... This we're is gonna, like you
0: being a pitcher. Almost.
1: We're going to have this taken off because yeah. you're, you're going to want that removed. Uh-huh. Now, the the irony is, I do end up with my hands on television in close ups, but not doing music. It was, it was cooking. Yeah, so I was not destined for this at all. And in, you know, you got to think about when. When this is, I'm growing up in the 60s and 70s. There's
0: no celebrity chefs.
1: I, I go off to you know, art school to actually be a silver and goldsmith, is what I studied Which is in college. amazing, too, yeah. Well, it's the same sort of manual dexterity Cut. that pastry requires and that playing an instrument requires. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of my love, is making stuff. Yep. You know, making jewelry and setting stones and adorning people. And then when I go to college I'm also like making vases and yeah. you know, raising silver and find out it's this very sort of flexible, fluid material, which is weird to say about metal, but that's what you learned you come to know when it's you're like a, a metal throwback snick. kind of
0: trade almost.
1: Um yeah, I mean, you know, Paul Revere. Yeah, right. all that. Uh and George Jensen, who's the Scandinavian guy that us. So anyway, while I'm in art school though, I start working in restaurants. Like yeah. what do you do as a starving art student? You waitress. And I give great waitress. Like I love, you know, cause I can c- connect with yeah, people. Yeah. I mean, I was on stage as a kid talking to 200 strangers wow. at a gig and I know how to. And I feel comfortable doing that at that point. Mm-hmm. So, and I love sort of describing the food and helping nurture people and restore people back to their. You know, that's what the word restaurant comes from. That's a French verb. Yeah. What's the French verb for restore? Restaurant. That's yeah. what the word restaurant comes from, and huh. what it means. And I've what, never thought about what that. it's for. It's to restore you back yeah. to like your best self. So I took that really seriously as a waitress. That so that was my job. Mm-hmm. And then one night. Um, a very typical thing happened, which is a line cook doesn't show up, does a no show, no call. And, you know, it's five o'clock and my manager's like, damn, you know, Chuck's not here. Gail, can you cook? And I'm like, no, I can't cook. I'm from the North shore of Chicago. You know, we, we make reservations and she gets an apron and she throws it at me and she says, you can cook now, get in the kitchen. Wow. And I had never... I'm 19. I'd never cooked for a freshman. This is a
0: high-end restaurant?
1: It's not. It's okay. a vegetarian restaurant. Okay. It's called Light of Yoga. And it, had, it was like half <laughs> bookstore, <laughs> half restaurant. Oh, and amazing. I worked there because I was a vegetarian at the time. Okay. It was the only place in town I could eat. And what actually had happened was I would go there and eat, and I would play Beat the check. Do you know that game? No. So you go in, you sit down, you have dinner, you... Ask for the check and then you get up to go to the bathroom and you never come back. You dine and dash. I've heard dine and right. dash. Right. Okay. I call it beat the check. Yeah. So I, I did, make that joke. I did all that the time. like three <laughs> times and I, after the third time I was like, Oh my god, I gotta stop doing this, like I'm gonna get caught. Yeah, yeah. I know. If I get a job here, I'll get family meal.
0: Very pragmatic. So you get
1: free food. Yep. That's sort of the deal in the restaurant is there's not a lot of upsides, but you get free dinner. Yep. And so I applied as a waitress. Because I could eat there. I got $2 worth of free food every day. I would eat a $1.25 salad. Mm-hmm. And I would invite my boyfriend up and he would have a 75 cent carob sundae. Oh, so I'd feed the whole family.
0: Carob sundae.
1: Carob, right? So, so I get thrown in the kitchen. Yeah. Right, that night that the line cook doesn't show up. And I'm, I'm terrified. I've never done this professionally. I made pies with my mother. Yeah. I baked with my Hungarian grandmother. Which is amazing. But I have dyslexia. So when I would bake with my mom, I would screw things up. Wow! And my lovely mother, instead of saying like, "Oh, gay, you screwed it up again," she'd go, "Oh, look, gay, you invited you invented something new." Oh wow! Like she didn't make me feel bad about it.
2: Wonderful.
1: And sort of, you know, helped me see it as like maybe it's a jumping-off point for something creative Mm -hmm. rather than a messing-up thing. Yeah. So anyway, so I get in the kitchen. I'm completely terrified for about six seconds. I just, like, don't even know what, like, I almost go white, you know, and don't know what I'm looking at, and, and then at, like, second number seven, I, and I get choked up every time I talk about it, I feel this sense of calm come over me.
0: Cool.
1: Like I had found my home. Oh, wow. And I don't know if you've ever had that. It's like, I, I felt like I was speaking a language I was completely fluent in, but I don't remember learning it. And I, it was like I found where I belonged at nineteen, which is like super lucky. You know, seven
0: I, seconds. I in. have a twenty. Yeah, seven seconds <laughs> wow. into it.
1: Um, looking back, like one of my theories is it must have sort of been the waitress in me would describe each dish to the line cook. Yeah. Of like, oh, that's the grilled cheese sandwich with the tomato and oregano, in it. because I would have to describe the food to the guests yeah. of what's got sesame oil and what's steamed and what's fried and. You know, I knew all about the food, so I just kind of talked the description to myself Mm -hmm. and and did that, and it all came came out. And I I was so excited, and, you know, it was like a calling almost. And I ran home that night after work, and I called my parents, and I said, I figured out what I want to do. I want to be a chef. So at 19, I know. My dad drops the phone. My mom kind of goes silent.
0: This is not the era of celebrity chefs. No, it was like all. 1975.
1: No. You know, Wolf, Julia Child, that's Wolfgang it. Wolfgang Puck had not legitimized no. us yet. No. My dad picks up the phone and he goes, "Well, gay. I guess everybody's got to eat."
0: <laughs> it's true.
1: You know, and my 19-year-old self is like, "Really? Really like that's the supportive thing you're saying?" You're like, "God." Yeah. And I I said, uh, That's what you've got to say." And he goes, "Well, you know, it's not a very reliable business. I said, Dad, you're a folk singer. <laughs> he goes, and a jazz trumpet player.
0: <laughs> and a philosophy professor on this yeah, side, right? Going, that makes a
1: difference. <laughs> so, I mean, I understand his fear was, you know, I was going into a career that was male-dominated. That For was sure. That was a lot of hours. It's, you know, he pictures like sweaty... Short order cook, you know, with a cigarette and a bottle of brandy on the top shelf. And like, that's the world I'm entering. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, I knew it was a fine art. I knew that I'm studying fine arts at the time, mm-hmm. which sort of involves maybe four, you know, three to four of your senses. If you're lucky, if you've got in most, you know, an interesting enough medium you're working in, but certainly not all five senses, but yep. food does. Yeah. Food really does. And in my mind, it was, it was a finer art than fine art was. Mm. Just, I didn't know how to express that, and I, you know, nobody got that, yet I did. I knew it was coming, but I I couldn't really convince people of that. So the funny thing is, you know, I was completely offended by what my dad said, well, gay, everyone's got to eat, Yeah. as if that's the only reason I'm doing it. But there's that funny thing where, like, as you get older, your parents get smarter. So I thought about later, I was like, well, you know, he's actually kind of right, in the sense that, you know, you can live without music, you can even live without visual art, but you literally cannot live without food. It's it's something that is essential to life. Yes. Everyone does have to eat. And yes. I was like, ooh, maybe you meant it in like this, you know, Buddhist kind of way that I've picked this field that, you know, is essential to life and is a, you know, can't you can't be without it. Yes. And so... He's absolutely right. Everyone does have to eat, and it might not have been such an awful thing to say. I'm not sure you meant it that way. Yeah,
0: well, you can interpret it however. We'll never
1: know, yeah. So um, it did take me a while to come to terms with uh, admitting that I loved cooking so much that that's what I was going to do. So I had to – my other after-school job was I was a strolling balladeer at a restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. It was this, like – it was called the James Tavern. It was sort of a Williams – uh, Williamsburg style, yeah, like yeah. Really so I like walked around in a bustier in a granny cap and sang like Irish and English folk songs. Oh my and, god! You know, singing like the Irish Rover and hoping for a lousy five dollar tip, but I get paid like a hundred bucks a night, which yeah, is not bad money for, for a kid, nineteen yeah. year old. So, and the funny thing, so I played at the one in Cleveland like every Tuesday night, mm-hmm. night. and my dad played it. There was one in Chicago also, and he played there. And when I came home for Christmas break, I remember that year, he had booked me into the James Tavern mm. so he could have like a week off. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he me working.
1: He's like, Oh by the way, while you're home, you know, you brought your bold sultry with you, right? Because I booked you in for, you know, every other night at the wow. James Tavern. I'm like, thanks, Dad. Thanks a lot. So I had to retire from that.
0: And take your new profession seriously. Right.
1: Yeah. And I, I also had a dad who really needed a daughter who had a college degree. Okay. Like one of his goals. Where'd you go to school? The Cleveland Institute of Art. Oh, yeah, okay. So CIA, which is kind of funny because the Culinary School in America is CIA also, the Culinary Institute Yes. So I tell people I went to CIA and they're like, oh, you know, the two year or the four, you know, like, who who were your chefs? I'm like, no, I went (laughs) to Cleveland Institute of Art. But he just, one of his goals was to have college graduate kids. Okay. And my brother actually dropped out of high school to be a musician and didn't go to college. So, like, it's all on me. Yeah. So he told me, you know, if I don't graduate college, no one will ever marry me, which is so funny because I've been married three times now, but but I did graduate college. Also, the previous generation,
0: I feel like there was a bias against it. You're too educated and maybe men will be afraid of you, like, if you go back to the forties or whatever. I okay. feel like that actually could be black. Feels like that way. That's I don't know. Interesting. Yeah.
1: I know for my mom, she felt super trapped in her sort of like nineteen fifties life and yeah. was the original feminist. She huh. like when I was in eighth grade we had to take typing and she told me to flunk typing.
0: Because it was too home ec-y.
1: She I'm like, What you want me to what? And she's like, I want you to flunk typing. I'm like, why would I do that? She goes, No daughter of mine's gonna be someone's secretary. Wow. So that's like 1969. Cool mom. You know, um, but trap, you know, she, she, I mean, she was trying to give me some tools that she wasn't given. Yeah. So I had to retire from music. I had to finish my degree in college. So my dad would be happy. Uh And so it's not till I'm like 27 that I like give myself a gift for my 27th birthday and allow myself to do this thing that I love doing. Mm -hmm. That, you know, at the time, I didn't know if it was sustainable or if I would tire of it. I'm 61 now, so it turns out it was a really good And I still love it, and I'm still interested, and yep. I'm still am learning and reading and teaching. But I just love thinking back on my 27-year-old self. Like, thank God I was honest with myself hmm. and allowed myself to give myself this gift of doing something that my family was not supportive of. You know, my brother was like, oh, you know what are we going to do when Gail needs to be supported? Cause she's going to fail at that. So it's a guy who's
0: a professional musician. I mean, it worked out, but still, well,
1: and then there's this weird, you know, and this is just sort of a parenting thing. There's this weird double edge of like, so did I achieve so much in my career because everyone thought I couldn't? Uh Like what if that's what motivates people?
0: But everybody has their own thing. That could work for you. It might not work for this yeah, guy. Yeah,
1: I just, you know, I sometimes worry, like, is that why I try so hard? Because my dad could never be pleased. Mm. And he he never really let me know that he never did, like, good job, gay. Yeah. And But I, like, later in my dad's life when he was in the hospital and things and for, you know, open heart surgery, I'd have to go and like, go and visit him, and the nurses would come up and they go, your dad is so proud of you. Yeah. And I'd be like, that's great. They'd be other really people. nice if he told yeah. me. You know, and that's like after I have a TV show for 10 years, like he's still never... Yeah, you've
0: made it to the max.
1: Yes, right. and so, but there's this funny thing of like, is that why I try so hard? Because he never did say good job, and maybe huh. that's the secret to me, you know, doing well. I don't know.
0: So, don't know. it's... You could unravel that 50 times, I feel yes. <laughs> like. Yes. So you talked about the male-dominated world of that. I mean, was that... You did end up starting when, you, I assume, you were a little bit more self-possessed in 27 to 19, and that, that's what I imagine would have given you a little bit of life experience. But it still has to be daunting, and the odds still have to be against you to a certain extent. So did you experience tangible roadblocks because of your gender? Uh Or lack of experience, or lack of... Cache or whatever, like, well,
1: if... yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's tangible roadblocks. Um, but initially, when Chef Greg Broman, uh, I had worked in a couple restaurants with him that one of them closed, like, right on, like, we were working Saturday night service, and like, the mob came in and just like closed the oh restaurant. Oh my god, bought it for cash from somebody who probably owed them money. Wow, and we lost our jobs. And then he got, got a job at the university club, so I followed him there, okay. and worked with him there, and then I kind of stopped working for him and um, was finishing my degree. Mm-hmm. And after I graduated from art school, I was making jewelry and making a living, mm-hmm. a, a little lonely living in my studio all by myself, you know, trying to discover the meaning of life for about a year. Yeah. And after a year, Greg Brownlin comes to me and says, Gail, you know, can you help me out? I really hate my pastry chef. I, I want to fire him would you just come and like work pastry for six months? Okay. And he was sort of like, you know, you know, you miss it. You know, you love it. And it's a, it's a real family thing working in a kitchen. You're mm. in this little, it's like a circus family. We're all dysfunctional people. <laughs> um, but it's a group effort. It's a team sport. It's yeah. not a, you know, you're not in your studio all by yourself trying to you out not your pout. life.
0: You don't have time for that. Well,
1: and just you've got helpers, you yeah. know, if you need them and you everyone's, you know, it sucks with everyone, you know. It's yeah, right. Let's have it suck together. Yeah. So, I kind of liked the social environment and okay. I liked working on a team and in a group and um so he talked me into coming back in the kitchen and I said to him though like I'm only doing it for 6 months because pastry is where you that's where you always stick, girls. You know, women always get stuck in the pastry department. Yeah. Or garmage, which is salads. Right. So he's like, okay, okay, here's, uh, here's the deal. You do this for me for six months and I will let you out if you want. If you're ready to get out of pastry, I'll move you somewhere else in the kitchen. Okay. So after six months, he comes to me. He's like, okay, you know, man of my word, would you like to be on the line or where else in the kitchen would you like to be? And I'm like, you know what? I just, there's a few more things I want to work on. I'm good for now. Can we give it another six months? So, you know, that it's a year and we go through that year after year after he comes back to me of like, how about now? I'm like, no, no, I'm still, you know, but I, but you know, how dare you stick women in pastry? But, I'll you know, let me just say a little <laughs> bit longer. And, you know, for me, it, it was chemistry. It was physics. Um, I've got some OCD and it really like feeds into that because yeah. everything has to be like. You know, precise, a way, exact, and in order. And, you know, yeah. a thousand truffles you're piping in little oh straight rows, like little soldiers. Like, it just, all of it fit me. Yeah. Um, the craftsmanship that it required, uh, you know, it wasn't like cutting up animals. That was also a plus. Yeah. So I ended up finding out that I had a... Affinity for pastry, mm-hmm. and it's funny because occasionally I have lunch with this chef.
0: Yeah, still
1: I'll go back to Rochester. Yeah, and he'll say like, "So, how about now?" <laughs>
0: no, like, oh,
1: no, not quite. <coughs> so, um, while I was working in kitchens, yeah, I did find that you know guys would be like, "Oh, do you need help lifting that?" Or yeah, you know, oh, and I'd say, you know, you'll know when I need help. Like, I got really sort of tough and mean, almost. Uh-huh. You learn to swear. You learn to hold your own. And I'm short. You know, I'm five feet tall. I'm not... It's hard to, So I always carry a milk crate next to me. <laughs> so you learn tricks of, like, how to not be dependent on other people. Yeah. And how to be independent. Because yeah. you don't want to be the weak leak in the kitchen. Sure. But there was also, you know, like, I'd go in the cooler. Uncle Phil would follow me in. He, you know, molest me in the cooler. Uh, I deflect his advances, yeah. which he could hardly believe that I, you know, wouldn't welcome him touching me and whatever, you know, trying to kiss me and stuff. And yeah. he, he flo- I remember the the last time it happened, he flew out of the cooler, screaming, "She's a lesbian! She's a fucking lesbian!" Because the only reasonable, you know, explanation for why I was deflecting his advances is I must be a lesbian. Yeah. Otherwise I would want it. So, you know, things like that, like you get hit on, um, often in restaurants, there's only one changing room because it was always all men. So there's not like a woman's locker room and a man's locker room. So you kind of learn to like change under your clothes or wait till everybody's gone. Um, and I had, you know, various things where I would show up for an event and because I was a woman, they'd, think that my male sous chef with me must be the chef and I must be the sous chef. Mm. So I had to learn to how to, you know, kind of straighten people out.
0: Did you ever get to the point that despite the fact that you love being a pastry chef because of this weird gender imbalance and all this stuff that did you think, well, screw this, I'm actually going to run, run my own place, fund my own place, change it all up and... You Know, not be one part of the equation, but actually be the, the, be the whole, person in charge.
1: I, you know, that would make a nice story, yeah. Um, but I never felt the need to do that. Okay. And then I, what I ended up doing was I married a chef, yes. And I was married to Rick Tremanto for 12 years, so but we dated for a bunch of years, so we and we usually worked together at the same restaurant, right? So he and I, you know, worked together. Or 15 or so, you were essentially the co person in charge, yeah. So, I was, you know, very much so. I was like the what is that thing where they say, like, behind every successful man is a is bri- brilliant or hard working woman. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah, what yeah. the woman is, but I was the one like writing all his recipes and doing all his food okay, costs and so doing a lot of the stuff that a chef would do, but not the leadership part. And I don't hunger hmm. to be that kind of leader. I think, you know, being a head chef requires wanting to manage lots of people, yes. orchestrate a lot of parts. I I love the, you know, I love butter, sugar, flour and eggs, which is why I wrote a book called that. Yeah. I love my ingredients. I like literally have, you know, sort of I think they have personalities. I think, you know, chocolate wants to be center of the the page, you know, they're like the funny guy in the room who always needs attention, whereas vanilla like is happy to you know, just make everyone else look good and be in the background and just be like good underwear that kind of makes you look great, you know, <laughs> if it only makes everything else taste a little bit better. Yeah. So I feel like my ingredients really have like personalities and I understand um, physics-wise how they react off of each other, what how they need each other and have dependency and how they're consistent. So I, I actually, you know, found this area that I just find so interesting mm. that I don't, I mean, I can, you know, make a killer chicken stock or I can, I can do all, I can, you know, filet saying I can break down a hog, all that stuff yeah. and do it and I'm good at it. But it's not what I dream about at night and it's not what I seek out. I just, I love desserts. And the, sort of the part of dessert that I didn't realize was going to happen is you're someone who helps people celebrate. Yeah. So when someone has a birthday or someone has a wedding, you're the person that makes the final course of that celebration to mark that moment. Like I'm the, I get to help people stop time and celebrate the fact that they beat cancer or that Gee. they know who they want to, to marry and they're going to ask them. And they give me the ring to put in a dessert. Oh my god! So I'm like part of their engagement. Yeah. Or you know, a family wants to celebrate because their son finally passed the bar exam after three tries. Wow! You know, those are the those are the moments I get to be in in people's lives for. Or you know, he finally broke up with that girl, and we never liked her anyway. And go
2: <laughs> celebrate! So
1: it's really a privilege yeah. to to be that in people's lives and. As a pastry chef, I, I just find it so interesting that in our culture, that's how we choose to celebrate—is mm-hmm. with dessert. Mm-hmm. And I maybe
0: prosecco or whatever. I, as well, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I guess
1: I get to be that guy who who figures out what's the perfect dessert for you to mark this important moment in your life.
0: That's really cool. Um, I want to ask you about working at True, but even working at a place like True, and we talked about this off the cuff earlier this weekend about that this is a momentous meal that it's gonna cost you some bucks and the food is gonna be on point. but the job of the people that run that place is that you need to know what's going on with that person's second cousin and you need to know not just about their allergies, but about you know what? they like, like this kind of chicken just a little bit more than that. they're just the little tiny things and that even though you have a set menu, You're going to flourish it up for these people because it's a six-table affair, a ten-table affair, something like that. And it's going to be so precise and so specific. What is that like? Because the mental energy required, if you're just kind of slinging food, like, yes, there's a lot of mental energy, but you can go on autopilot a lot. Now you have to be right on point with the food, but you also have to have this mind meld with your customers, which does not exist at most restaurants, I think. Right. So what, what? Which is
1: probably why we could only be like an A.D.C. restaurant because I, I yeah. don't think we could do it with three hundred covers. Yeah, um, but right. A lot of it has to do with loving to nurture and take care of people. Mm-hmm. It's almost like being a butler or you know being a concierge, and you're just so interested in intimately, you know, or as intimate as you can, mean knowing your customers' preferences, um, where they like to sit, you know, when. I remember we took the Parmesan biscuits off the menu and um this one, fa- I don't want to say their name, I'm like trying to keep myself from saying their name. <laughs> this one family, she they came in, they would eat there every, um, I think it was like every Thursday night, they would come in, they were the greatest <clears throat> table, they'd come in like 5.30 when we opened, they'd order a degustation menu, mm-hmm. it was her and her husband, and they'd order like an $800 bottle of wine Ooh. and they were out by... Six thirty. Oh my goodness! Like it's the dream customer. Like thousand dollars, <laughs> you know, five hundred dollar check average per person, oh. and doesn't even stay at their table past six thirty, so you can still use you it. You can like turn
0: it over of, four more
2: times to at the
1: restaurant. But um, and we took the biscuits off, and she was upset. We had changed. I had changed the bread, and yeah. she said, "You know, if you don't bring those biscuits back, I'm not sure we're gonna be coming back." And they went, ah. you know, right back on All the right, menu. You bet. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but some of it is, you know, we literally would keep track of what, you know, what, yeah, the what cocktails or they ordered. Well, computers, yeah. So lucky. What cocktails they ordered? What allergies? Excuse me. People had, mm-hmm. you know, when their anniversary was. We even we had a thing where we were going to send <clears throat> anniversary cards to people because we had their anniversaries in the system. Sure. But then it was like, but what if they get divorced? Like, and we don't want to be the ones of like reminding them that you know, yeah. They're not, so we couldn't do that one. Um, but the, the restaurant true was sort of all about anticipating people's needs and wants before they even knew they had them.
0: Yeah. That was, that's a great hotel too, I guess. What? Uh, To, to do that kind of thing to anticipate needs. Right.
1: And it's sort of, you know, that's what Michelin star service is about. Sort of anticipating, you know, serving you water before you even realize your glass was, you know, half empty. Right. Um, some of it though, we, I think we, some of the ideas went a little overboard. Some of the ideas, like we had purse stools next to every... Chair, so women didn't have to put their purse That's on the back of chair. Well, the reason it's great is that you don't have to recover your chairs as often, because mm-hmm. they get really worn out from, like, a purse strap wow. on them. So if you have a stool, it's just set. But then also, like, you can work out of it if you're a woman. Like, you can get your pen or you can get your yeah. glasses. So that was a great thing. And we had even, we had reading glasses for people who would, if we saw someone sort of rummaging around wow. unsuccessfully... We had, it was almost like the kind of tray a jeweler would have for diamonds. You know, wow. Like a black velvet tray. This is amazing. But we had, like, various reading glasses on it to present, and you could pick a pair. But, like, one of them were nose glasses, you know. With that, Le like, pince-nez. <laughs> yeah. To be funny. And, like, on the, I wanted to do, on the Pettifour Four cart, have, like, Alka-Seltzer in one of the bowls, like, to be funny. But my my partner was like, no, that's going too far. And we had thought about having the valet, like, spray chocolates odor in your car when you get your car back. Like it smells nice, like chocolate. Why didn't
0: I eat at this but restaurant? But then we
1: realize like people might have allergies. Yeah. So some stuff you have to like think through a little extra. Yeah. Um, but we always had, there was a little like giveaway that everyone went home with. It was like a little financier or Madeleine or something in a bag. Okay. Something we kept for a couple of days because we realized that we're going to hand them this little thing. It's like, this is our goodbye kiss. And you know, my hope is that, like a good date, you know, it's there in the morning.
2: Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: And, uh, you, you know, hopefully you'll think back on oh, what a great time you had with us, but we knew people would stick them in their pockets, forget about them for three days and then like, Oh, look, there's that thing from true. Yeah. So yeah. it had to be something that like kept well. So we, you know, that was just what we were doing at that time. We were trying to anticipate how to provide not only the, the best dining experience, but with a sense of humor. There were a few really good fine dining restaurants in Chicago at that time. Yeah. Um, you know, Charlie Trotter had been in existence for a while and had sort of taught Chicago how to fine dine. But yeah. we also had Jean Bonchet, who was a chef from France who cooked, you know, along, who was a colleague, um, or a contemporary of like Alain Chapelle and Bocuse and all those guys. He can, and he also sort of taught us about proper French service and, mm. and fine dining. So it was like, you know, not that we had to do something different, but we realized, and this is when I say we as Rick, yeah, you know, my chef husband, and I realized that, yeah, you know, and we had worked in England, we had worked in Europe, and we had eaten all over Europe, and we realized the more we spent on dinner, the less fun we had. Oh, and that just seemed like wrong. Like the food would be flawless. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you go to Freddie day, and it's just, you know. Perfection. The best
0: steak you've ever had, or whatever. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and but also the most money you've ever paid for a meal, and like, and I really just didn't have that much fun. Like I, you know, I kind of felt like I wasn't sure if I was using the right fork, and I was nervous about this, and like, you know, did I dress? So we decided like we were going to do fine dining with a sense of humor, right? And we were going to make fun of all those forks and you know all the place settings that are there, and the you know six wine glasses and you know, kind of make light of the fact that, you know, we understand it's a little much. Um, So here's a grilled cheese sandwich, but like a really good one. And it's really tiny and we'll (laughs) charge you a lot for it. It was like if, you know, the smaller things were, the more we could charge for them. Um, So it was it was a really fun experience. And I think we just we wanted to get it the most right you possibly could. That was what Rick and I were interested in doing. If, and, and we hired people who wanted to do that, too, and they did it.
0: It feels like that was ahead of its time because that's every good restaurant. If you go to Montreal, which is good at restaurants and it's phenomenal, you know, the standard bearer is Joe Beef and you, you wear jeans and... It's very casual, but the food is extremely good, and it's you, it's fun. And there are a whole bunch of restaurants like that in every city now. And like...
1: We started a trend, oh my god! <laughs> yeah,
0: look, Lübeck fan, per se. You know, these like, grand restaurants. Do people do that anymore? I feel like you have to be 70 to want to go to... If you have money and you're 45 years old or 35 years yeah. old, that's not where you would go. No, you would it's go to funny, a Joe Beef kind of place. Because
1: that's what people recommended me. And like, I have no interest in that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. I, I'm not Joe Beef, but I have no interest in like, you know, I went to Per Se, of course. I'm and, sure. and i know It was delicious. And, yeah. yeah, but like, I don't really need that kind of, that style of dining in my life anymore. Yeah. And, and that wasn't, you know, what Rick and I were trying to do. Right. We were trying to acknowledge um, like the, I think I was I don't know if you were here for lunch the other day when we did the BLTs like part of one of my pilgrimages is I'm I'm on the hunt for the best BLT in the country Wow which you know it's not like I'm on the hunt for the best spinach souffle I'm I have this respect for everyday food
0: mm-hmm.
2: but
1: done really well yes. Uh, so for me, you know, we were sort of incorporating some of that into True's menu and, and, you know, kind of glorifying things that hadn't been glorious in, you know, decades, yeah. but, you know, but are important, are important culturally, um, and are delicious, you know, and let, we can just put that on some marble and now it's fine dining, you know, and use really good rioche and use... You know, killer, full leppy cheese and, yeah. and things like that.
0: So, cookbooks, this idea of, okay, well, I'm going to put this out there for the world. Not everybody's a writer. Is it just you achieve a certain milestone, you're famous enough, you have to write cookbooks? Do you have an air drive to do cookbooks? Is it, oh, I need to share my gift with the world? How does one decide to not only do one, but just continue on and become prolific at that kind of
1: and thing? And do eight of them. Eight of them. Well, you know, one of the interesting things is I... You know, I flung typing. We, we talked about that. Yeah, that's right. So, and dyslexia. So, I have sort of, you know, uh. two little strikes against me
0: there. Do you writing. use a dictation software? To do that? No,
1: I don't. Um, but, and initially, why we wrote our first book, I did it with Rick. Rick, yeah. Um, I mean, I mostly did it with Julia Moskin, who was our writer, yep. who now writes for the New York Times. So, we're not allowed to write with her anymore. No. Because <laughs> of non competes. But, yeah. um, Julie and I did a, most of it. Uh, you know, we would watch Rick Cook and write down what he did, things like that. But it was really Rick, honestly, who wanted a book. Okay. You know, all our friends had books. You know, Bobby Flay had a book. Yeah. Everyone else had a book. And so Rick sort of was looking around, and he wanted a book, too. And Bobby was nice enough to introduce us to his agent, That's Jane cool. Distill, in New York. And we... It was funny, though. We went to Jane, and we had already been known for... We had a restaurant called Trio, mm-hmm. which was fine dining and fancy pants before we had true Mm -hmm. trio was like in 93. So we were doing this very visual food. It was in like uh wine spectator magazine, Mm -hmm. you know, we were getting some national acclaim. We had gotten top 10 best new chefs from food and wine magazine, um, which Julia child gives you that award. And that was part of how I met Julia. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. But, um, after a couple of years, Rick wants a book and we go to, we meet up with Jane in New York, and she's like, okay, what do you got? You know, she's real New York. She's like, what do you got? You know, give me a pitch me. Mm-hmm. We're like, well, we have this fine dining restaurant, and we, we played on marble and glass, and... She's like, uh, what else you got? <laughs> you know? We're like, well, uh, we're opening a brasserie in uh, you know six months, but it's not really open yet. She's like, yeah, hey, tell me more, tell me more. I can sell that maybe. What's that? Mm-hmm. We're like, well, you know, it's like chicken and shoestring potato, you know, roast chicken, shoestrings, potatoes, goat cheese. She's like, yeah, 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 I think I can sell that. Okay, we'll do that. Mm. And like, we had to sort of write a proposal for a restaurant that didn't exist yet.
0: Right and, food and that, essentially a book proposal, food it, that huh? hadn't
1: been born yet. Wow! <laughs> so that was sort of you know my dad like oh just you have to just be eight lessons yeah. ahead of your students, um, and you know we write a she introduces us to a young uh, editor Julia Moskin who just wants to write you know yeah. the, the actors who just want to direct and we give Julia <laughs> her first gig and that's one of the smartest things we ever did was like find someone who wants to be something. And help facilitate that, and they will be so loyal. Yeah. Because you help them, like, you know, get out of the hood or whatever it is yeah. you're helping them do. So we had a great time writing that first book, um, and by the time it came out, the restaurant was open yeah. and successful. It was called Brasserie Tea. And uh, I think once we wrote that, we what happened was there, like, wasn't enough room, really, for all the desserts that I wanted to do. So this next book was... I think the next book was Butter, Sugar, Flour, Eggs, mm-hmm. and it was an all-pastry book, an all-dessert book. And, you know, Rick, like, drove me to the post office or whatever, but he didn't really do, it, do anything. No, that's which just fine. Yeah. But um, his name was on the cover because yeah. we were, like, this chef couple. And um, I think we got to be on a couple of Food Network shows, like, to promote both of those books. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of how the Food Network thing started was just... You know, you go on book... That used to be when there was book tour.
0: Book junkets, used, book tours. Yeah, there
1: used Let's to Let's go to
0: Columbus. Budget for book tour. Oh, yes. I
1: mean, I even... I had to go to Canada. I went to Vancouver once for one of my books, which was cool. Um, but you used to go on book tour. Yeah. And do, you know, seven morning television shows. Yeah. So, um... So, the books kind of... Those two kind of happen that way. And then, um... I think what happened next, let me think, oh, we opened True, and I had all these little desserts that I was doing on the pay Four cart, and it was like, oh, that's a book. You know, you kind of see something and be like, that could be a book, the Mm. way you hear a story and be like, ooh, that could be a movie. Yeah. You know, that's how it was. And then I got my TV show on Food Network. Yeah. So with my show, we would tape 30 shows at a time. Which have three recipes per show. Yeah. So there's 90 recipes I need to do. Double dipping,
0: you know what you're doing.
1: So it's like, okay, uh, you know, we sort of pick themes that I already had recipes for, but maybe I had like two out of the three. Mm -hmm. And the third one I had to like write a new one. And by the time I was done with the 90 recipes, 45 were from books that already existed. And 45 were new recipes. I'm like, oh, there's half of my new book. Oh, wow. So it would, like, write itself Mm -hmm. and become, the you know, I had a book half written, so now I just got to write the second half. So they just kind of, like, rolled out that way. Uh, It wasn't, you know, a big plot or, you know, a design or a goal or anything like that, which I feel bad saying that, you know. That's
2: okay.
1: I didn't, didn't, there was no rubrics, it wasn't charted out or anything, it was just kind of. And I, it's sort of every two years I seem to write one, um, though I haven't in the last like five years, but up until Gail Gann's lunch, I had written a book like, I think every two years Mm. and the, the last two were savory kind of, I did Gail Gann's brunch and Gail Gann's lunch. Yeah. And that was when I sort of was experimenting with like, okay, like. Will people accept me as more than just a pastry chef? Yeah. And I was actually cooking as a chef at that time. As a, I was a chef in residence at this organic historic farm
2: okay.
1: that grew all this stuff, and my job was to like, cook with the stuff, and then they sold it at their farmer's market. Mm. And the pay was really shitty, so I yeah. was like, what can I do to supplement my pay? I know I'll teach some classes here, and we'll charge a lot for that. And so the combo was like a really sustainable gig. Yeah and fun, and near my house, and a beautiful setting. And to this day, I still teach the classes there. I teach there, like, once or twice a month um, for the big bucks, but don't do the, like, bad hourly rate stuff. But I wasn't sure if people were okay with me not being just a pastry chef. Right. So the first book was the Gallions Brunch that was not sweets or desserts, which is in, like, I think it's in fifth printing now. It did really well, is the point of that. And I found out, like, oh, okay, I, like they'll let me out of the cake box, and I can, you know, be respected and and seen as someone they people want to learn from in other parts of the kitchen as well. So that was kind of a nice freeing thing.
0: We're uh, talking here in Cooperstown, and uh, one of the speeches I enjoyed a lot at the induction was of Chipper Jones Mm -hmm. Chipper Jones is a great ball player and Chipper Jones talked about meeting Mickey Mantle and how he was a prospect at that time he hadn't established himself but he was obviously very talented, he was the number one pick in the draft Chipper Jones went on to become a Hall of Famer so you mentioned meeting Julia Child is it the same kind of thing is it, here's this titan of industry teach me, teach me, oh my god or is it, oh that's cool, Like let's chit chat Like were you starstruck, was it I need to learn as much as possible from this person what was that encounter like
1: well, I think the first time I met her, um, she was like on a panel discussion at a like a food and wine conference I was at, Okay. and I remember asking her, you know, I'm for some reason like when seventeen people raise their hand, I'm the one that gets called on, huh. and I know that, <clears throat> like I know that's coming, and I can feel it. You mm. know, when there's a magician on stage and he's looking for a volunteer, <laughs> and fifty people raise their hand, I always get picked. Huh. So I knew my question would. You know, I'd get called on, and I remember my question to her was, um, I asked her, you know, why is it an, that with people like you, the only way we can have your food is we have to make it ourselves. Like why didn't you ever have a restaurant?
0: That's a good question.
1: And she said, oh i'm I'm way too smart to have a
0: restaurant <laughs> <laughs> And they're way too much
1: trouble. And I think that was before I had restaurants yeah. and I was sort of like checking with the elders, you know of like, is this a good idea? Um, which it's a terrible idea. So you ignore her. Yeah, advice Completely yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's who goes into the restaurant business is people who like can't help themselves but do it. Uh, uh, you know, after all the good advice and authorities have been, you know, consulted, they still go against what people say. So that was sort of the first time I like met her a little bit. But the real time was when I was getting my top 10 best new chefs award. Yeah. From food and wine. And she gives out the award and the night before you get your award, she would hold court at the jerome it's you know food and wine classics in aspen colorado mm-hmm. so she would hold court at the jerome hotel where we were all staying <clears> to meet like the young you know it's like that scene in the rudolph the red nose reindeer cartoon where like all the young bucks are trying out for santa <laughs> so we'd all be sitting in a circle and she'd go around the circle and be like you know tell me about yourself and what's your background and you know where did you go to school and mm-hmm. she want she was always really interested and in a really good listener <laughs> Wanted to know everybody's story, wanted to connect, she was great at that. And when she got to me, and it was it was me and Rick. So yeah. there were eleven top ten best new chefs that year. Because we were a chef couple. Correct. So she got to me and she said, uh, she said, you know, Oh Dearie, where did you learn to cook? you know, and I'm like, Well, you know, I'm mostly self taught. She goes, oh, never say you're self-taught. <laughs> Always say you learned in the field. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I learned in the field. I went to Laverin for, like, two summers, but I didn't have a degree or, you know, I wasn't one of these kids that went to CIA. For,
0: the other CIA. The other CIA so, yeah,
1: the yeah, CIA. Um, and then she looks at Rick, she's like, what about you, dear? He's like, oh, I'm self-taught, too. And she, like... Hits him so hard in the arm. She like slaps him in the arm. She's like, "What did I just tell you?" And he's like, "I mean, I mean, I learned in the field." And it's it's funny because if you ever meet Rick, he's a big guy. Yeah. He's like a three hundred pound big guy. Yeah. And the idea of like Julia Child rocking on him and scaring him, <laughs> and like, you know, like kind of making him stutter was sort of funny. So that was when we first met her, and then. Later that year was when I get that call I'm Mm. just like in my kitchen My pastry kitchen at Trio And the phone rings And I'm like hello pastry And on the other line it's like, hello dearie This is Julia Child calling (laughs) (laughs) And you're thinking like Really like do you have to say who you Like everybody knows that voice You don't really have to say who you are And then she goes I want to know if you want to be in my new book Baking with Julia (laughs) As if like is it no, like sorry, if, Yeah, dizzying, right. Yeah, no, like, oh let me think about that. Yeah. I don't know. Um so I'm like, Oh of course, you know, of course Julia, I'd yeah. love to. So it turns out that Julia doesn't really bake and she's writing a book called Baking with Julia. So she calls she called us the twenty seven voices. We were the twenty seven voices from across the country who contributed recipes to her book. And we each had our own chapter. Okay. And if you got your recipes in on time, to Dory Greenspan, who was writing the book. She was a book writer at the time. who also, like, she writes Pierre Hermes books, who's a, you know, fantastic French pastry chef. And now writes her own books and is a pastry chef in her own right. If you get your recipes into Dory on time, you get to come to Cambridge and go to her house and tape the show for PBS. Oh, wow. And be on TV. Oh, wow. And I would never really been on TV much. I mean, at that point, I think I'd done one no I don't think I've done any so I'm like not even media trained at this point
0: are you scared are you
1: so I'm not scared because I've done a lot of demos right. and so I had that one demo67 like I turned completely you know blazing red and and then I, and I can't talk because my mouth is so dry okay. like that first time and then it never happened to me again uh-huh. so I turn in my recipes and then I get to go to Cambridge, which is like going to Santa's house, mm-hmm. right? You're going to Julia, T- and it's just what you want it to be. It's like this old Victorian, you know, kind of dusty house. It's four stories, and her. And oddly, her kitchen is not great. Like if I was her, I would so have like the Uber kitchen, right? But it's like it's an island. It's got sort of a crappy old oven, and I mean it's fine. And but the iconic. I don't know how much you know about Julia, but she had this pegboard where all her pots and pans were hung, and her husband, Paul, drew an outline around each pan so every day they could go back into the right place, and, like, that iconic pegboard was there. Just, like, it's all there. Wow. And when you go, you go for three days. And what it is is the first day you're just kind of adjusting and, you know, making sure that she's got the equipment you need and that, like, your mise en place is somewhere, like, there's ingredients there for you. And then the second day, you prep all your stuff, and you watch whoever's taping that day. Mm -hmm. And then the third day, you tape. And someone else is watching you. And it was kind of a that three-day cycle Mm -hmm. that she just kept going through. But I remember when I first got there, I'm in the basement, I'm kind of looking around to see if she's got, you know, what kind of rolling pin does she have, and blah, blah, blah. And she comes flying down the stairs, and she's like, oh... She always called me Deary, which implied she did not remember my name. But
2: mm-hmm.
1: later, a book came out that's called Oh Deary. I yes. guess she called everyone Deary. She's like, Oh Deary, I just can't wait to work with you tomorrow. And it, she had given me the Philo chapter. So all my desserts were made with Philo. She goes, I can't wait to work with you tomorrow to d- work with Philo, Philo, whatever you call that stuff. <laughs> And I said, well, Julia, you know, certainly you've worked with Philo before. No, no, dearie. And I just can't wait tomorrow to learn about it from you. Whoa. And I have this moment where I'm like, wait,
0: wait. Did I
2: just
1: hear that? Did Julia Child just say she can't wait to learn about Philo, Philo, whatever you call mm-hmm. that stuff from me? From me? And, you know, it's like that you will have this moment. There's a, well, you've had it, the moment where, like, you're somebody's kid. And then you're like, oh, my God, I'm somebody's dad.
2: Yeah. Or, like, you were Not the yet.
1: employee, and then, like, oh, my God, I'm the boss. Like, when did yeah. that happen? So I, ha- that, I had moment. that with Julia Child. And so I'm a little bit, you know, I'm kind of freaked out. And it, go watch the the shows. They're darling. Mm-hmm. They're darling. Like I said, it's before I media trained. Yeah. So I'm soft-spoken.
0: Yeah. I'm, like, no good. D-
1: demure. Yeah. I'm I'm terribly blonde. <laughs> um. Uh, my eyes uh, before the Food Network got a hold of my eyebrows, so they're like massive. <laughs> eyebrows. And I'm I'm five feet tall, yeah. and Julia is not. No, she's you, not. You know, she's <laughs> like normally like five eleven, I think, or six feet. Thank God she had scoliosis, so she was like, five <laughs> ten. But it's this mutton Jeff thing. And you know, with TV, like if there's a lot of disparity this way or this way, it, you know, it doesn't make the best TV.
0: I'm six foot four. I'm aware of right. This. So you put into to
1: that all the time. Yeah. And what she said before we went on camera, she says to me, Now, dearie, if you're talking too much, I'll stick my thumb in your thigh. (laughs) Which is, like, so perfect, because it's, like, gender neutral. Yeah. You know, it's under counter, it's off camera. She goes, After all, it is my show.
2: Fantastic.
1: And two things. Go watch the show, and you'll see how ridiculous that's statement was only because like I barely speak I'm just so like little sweet granddaughter in the show um and I tried to figure out later like why did she say that and her show that she had done before this one was called Jacques and Julia so it was with Jacques Pepin yeah right and Jacques just railroad like just steals the whole show he's so chatty and she's kind of she's you know 84 at the time and mm. kind of can't get a word in so she's determined to like have this be her show even though she's not cooking yeah, We're doing all the cooking. She's like, she told us her job was to be, like, anticipate what the audience at home might be wondering and ask that. Mm. Like, oh, was that a quarter cup or a half a cup? Like, that was her job. and um, And it was, you know, before the Internet. So you couldn't, like, everything changed when the Internet happened. We used to have to give quantities on camera. Yeah. And then later, as I get a show on the Food Network, they're like, don't give quantities, because they want to drive people to the website. Oh. Right, so you have to, like, relearn how to do your recipes. But when we first start on camera, I'm, like, really far away from her, because I don't want to get the thumb in the thigh. <laughs> so I'm like, arms, di- which makes terrible TV, you know, to be no, like. No, it's a two shot, you, you got to be on camera. Yeah, you got to be, like, shoulder yeah. to shoulder, overlapping, practically. Yeah. So it's kind of funny, like, you'll watch, you know, me sort of, like, the, the director was clearly like doing Move <laughs> together, move together. Um, and it, it actually went so well I got to do two episodes which most people only oh, got fine. to do one. So that was very nice. Um, so that was, you know, some of the meeting with Julia. There's lots of Julia stories but I don't think we have time for <laughs> for all of those. But it was a great experience. The thing is when we were done taping both shows, you know, the director yells cut, you know, rap, you know, mm-hmm. I, I got what I need and I start crying, I first start crying, and they're like, what's wrong, what's wrong, like, do we have to retake the last, you know, segment, or like, what's the matter, I'm like, no, no, you don't understand, (laughs) you know, like, what, what, I'm like, nothing, it's just, it's just, it's over, and like, I spent all year saying, you know, when I go to Julia's, and when Julia and I cook, and this, and like, what will I talk about now, and now that I've taught julia child Jeez. about follow whatever you call that stuff <laughs> like what do you do next life like, is all downhill from yeah, here like, i have to go like stock groceries in a grocery store oh. or something like or go be a bookkeeper like what do you do after that
2: yeah.
1: and i couldn't figure out like what else is there when you've done that yeah, you like i peaked at such a young age yeah. and i mean the sweet thing is you know we didn't know the food network was coming yes but it, you know, at the of, time
0: you you think no, this it, is the pinnacle,
1: right? And you know there was plenty more. And I have this funny thing where, like, I sort of don't even set goals because I realize that I can't really sort of dream as big as how quickly opportunities yeah. reveal themselves great. to us. So, and you know, you get asked that in interviews, I'm like, "What's your five-year goal?" I'm like, none, because if I had said to you, you know. Without you know, give me a five-year, ten-year, twenty-year. So if I'd said to you in you know 1999 that I wanted, I want to have eight books, two James Beard Awards, a TV show on the Food Network that runs for ten years, uh, a root beer company, you know, like you would have been like, you have balls. Like, none of that's going to happen for you. And, or
0: you're meant to, excuse me, mentally, mentally ill. Yeah, right, right, right.
1: So, and those are all the things that happen. Yeah. So, had I called them out, I mean, yes, the universe probably would have brought them a little sooner had yeah. I called them out. But, like, I don't have the gumption to be, to say that that's, you know, I can't even dream that big. Like, who knew that all that stuff was wow. going to be available? So, I just kind of like, say thank you and, you know, answer all my emails and try to return all my phone calls and, you know, just keep up with what keeps being given to me. And I'm just grateful, you know. I always... I try to send a thank you note to Food Network every year because I Mm. feel like my career has probably gone on much longer than it should have. Mm. But, I, you know, I'll go to, like, Minneapolis and do a cooking demo and hundreds of people show up. Because you had a show. Because I had a show.
0: Yeah.
1: I call... I, You know, when... I first, when I got canceled, yeah. I sent a thank you note of, like, this was great. You know, thank you so Hello. much for giving me this show. It changed everything. It, you know, it doubled my book sales. I had butts and seats in my restaurants every night. And the most important thing is it paid, and I cry when I talk about this, but mm. it paid for my kid's college. Gee. It paid for Gio's college. Wow. Like, that was how I built a 529 account. And my kid is not a kid who has to apply for FAFSA or needs to get out loans or is going to be burdened with loans when he finishes school. And I even, I got him a t-shirt and had it made that says Food Network paid for my college. Oh my God. And I like gave him to him as he was going, you know, freshman year when I dropped him off at College of Worcester. And I wrote a thank you note again saying, you know, I just, I can't thank you enough for all this. And, and my kid's going to college on Food Network. And I want to remind you that I've got these twin girls whose 529 account is not loaded up. Don't have the college money yet, so I've got another show. That would be really awesome. But, you know, it's, like, life-changing, and I just feel very fortunate. And I feel guilty. There's, like, sort of survivor guilt. Maybe you have that. when, Like, you're the guy that got the show. Yeah. I'm like, why me? Like, I have friends that work way harder, or, or you know, we all work 16-hour days. Yes, my parents sprung for braces, you know, and John Hogan's parents didn't, so yeah. he's got bad teeth, and, you know, Jacques Therese is a terrific pastry chef, but I got the first Food Network show of All Desserts and All Pastries because I didn't have a French accent and I could be understood. Huh. Um, I, I got the show because I was comfortable on camera. Yeah. Unlike other chefs, because my dad threw me up on stage as a kid Mm. all the time. So I had a bunch of skills. Apparently, you know, when they were looking for Food Network hosts, they were looking for people who were comfortable on camera, Mm -hmm. um, people who could teach, and people who could actually cook. Like, you needed those three things. And I guess to find all three in someone was rare. Yeah. You know, there are people who can cook really great, but they can't explain what they're doing. Or once they start explaining, their hands stop moving, and when you only have 22 minutes to get through three recipes, like, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, or someone who can teach, but, you know, is so uncomfortable on camera. No charisma. Yeah, and just can't connect. Yeah. Can't connect with their peeps, you know, with their audience, or can't feel their audience on the other side of the camera, which we talked about a little bit. Yeah. So I'm, I'm the girl that gets that, you know, and I... Like, I have a why me moment, but it's, you know, a positive why me. Like, why me? Why do I, why am I... And I'm just the luckiest girl in the world is all I can figure out. But I I do, um, I sometimes, you know, feel bad that like my other friends, my ex-husband, yeah. you know, who's a really talented chef, did, didn't get a show, you know. And it's probably part of what broke us up. Like, as hmm. a woman in the industry, I was... I was considered more interesting because it was like, ooh, a woman. Like, who who cares about a male chef? That's common. But, ooh, a female in the wow. kitchen. So I would get a lot of attention because I was the minority. I was the Jew. I was the, you know, I was older than everybody else. I was I was short. You know, I was I was an art student who flipped, you know, over to cooking. I had all yeah. these sort of unique things that brought attention to me. And it was hard, I think, on... On my chef husband at the time. You know, not everybody gets a show. hmm. I mean, do you have some of that?
0: Well, a little bit. Actually, the thing that that got me, what you were saying, was what happens if you reach a pinnacle? My goal when I was a kid, I subscribed to Sports Illustrated when I was eight, and I was like, I think I want to write for Sports Illustrated one day. And then I did. And then you did. (laughs) But the cool thing is, now I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I'm in my 40s. Maybe I'll never know. Great! So, maybe then your next thing, you're going to be 75 and you're going to have your thing. And and just to kind of wrap up the conversation and bring it home, you talked about the survival guilt or whatever. Like, I'm some guy, whatever, and I'm a, I have not reached any pinnacle or whatever, but I've had some modicum of success and it's really great. And there are other people who maybe better, maybe harder working, and they possibly should be ahead or whatever. So, what what can you do? You have stories like, jessica the intern and you try to lift other people up as best as you can if somebody comes to you and says can you help me out with something you try to take five or ten minutes and you can and you do the best that you can and you appreciate that your kids benefit from this and that you just try not to be an asshole about it and that, that's that's all you can do and i right. i don't i don't put my status in my field anywhere near the status in your field but i think that's what you do is you just okay so i got something good let me go help other people so they can get something good and then then there is no guilt and everybody's happy and everybody wins right? I mean it seems that way and
2: yet we still
0: feel it Uh,
1: a little bit a little bit but yeah I I think you're probably right (laughs) well
0: uh, Gil this has been a pleasure and uh, I enjoyed uh, talking to you off podcast and I love that we were able to talk in exactly the same way on podcast not that I'm any bit surprised and
1: thank you thanks for asking I appreciate it